Celluloid Citizens, a podcast about film. I'm Christopher Burke. And I'm Sean M. Thompson. And today we're going to be talking about 1971 horror film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, uh, directed by John Hancock, written by John Hancock and Lee Kalchheim, and uh, with an uncredited um, nod to Sheridan LaFanu for the story Carmilla, uh, starring Zora Lampert as Jessica, Barton Heyman, Kevin O'Connor, and Mary Claire Costello. Uh, with cinematography by Robert M. Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, interesting movie. It sure was. You know, I, I can't think of many I've seen. I mean, I can think of a few somewhat similar films, but really this it does feel pretty unique in a number of ways. Uh, and I was unfamiliar with it. Uh, this was my first time watching it just in the Yeah, same. Point. This was my first time. Um, I mean, we'll get into it. I'm still sort of trying to figure out if I liked it or not. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm still, uh, I would call it a mixed review on yeah. my side at this point. Um, there's some things I like about it, but there, there were some uh, uh, some pacing things that bothered me and a, a few execution things in general that I think made it less suspenseful than it could have been, less, uh, less impactful than it could have been. Yeah, I think I told you off air um, when I started watching this, it seems like a lot of people on drugs decided to make a movie, but possibly in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little bit of that for sure. Um, they're they're going for slow burn, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. But it was a little too slow in places. Like I just feel like it didn't it didn't maintain quite enough tension. In and order I, to I feel. do think, yeah, in terms of the pacing, and I mean, really, they do an all right job, but the actors are not. I don't know. What's a polite way to say this? I mean, well, they, they seem, they seem like sort of amateurish. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, um, I thought Jessica, uh, Zora Lampert's performance was easily the best, but yeah, you, know, yeah. still, you know, there were some really shining moments. There were also moments that kind of felt like she wasn't really at, at the top of the game, you know, like it, it just, I don't know. It, it yeah, there were certain takes where I just, I found myself saying out loud, are, are we keeping that? <laughs> like, yeah, but at the same time, there were some really stellar moments that she had in particular. I, I think it's a it's a tough role, especially in 1973 when I can't really think of any movies that have happened before this where it's really like – it's a horror movie built around a woman protagonist who is – it's mostly a dramatic performance for a while, but as it yeah. escalates, it becomes more about the horror. But like in 1973, I, I can't think of many examples that had happened yet where that was the, the setup and the character dynamics. You know, you have – you know, some later with the rape revenge films, like I Spit on Your Grave, where right, it follows yeah. a woman's character arc. But there was, you know, it, this was, I, I think that this film was kind of one of its kind at its moment. Yeah, uh, I think what's ways. interesting about the film is that it tackles, it does sort of a thing that we've seen a lot lately where it does that, um, uh, is it a mentally ill person or is it supernatural or is it both? True. Yeah, that, that was, and I think that that aspect of it was very well balanced, and and the the story structure was was created in a way that really highlights the the effectiveness of that particular premise. I, I guess. Yeah, so like and that I would also it, uh, before I forget, the sound design was I liked the sound design a lot. Yeah, uh, that was that was a point where, well, I guess the the main thing I noticed was it kind of alternates between kind of like natural sounding percussive stuff that you would associate perhaps with these hippies that, that the main characters are referred to as, and yeah. then in the more tense moments, it switches over to a synthesizer 
based. That sounds more like Suspiria or even It Follows, I was reminded of. It sounds very 8-bit or 16-bit at times, whichever whichever is the correct math there. Yeah, no, it did sound a lot like that. Apparently the music was by someone named Orville Stober. So they did a good job, and whoever mixed it did a good job. Well, at, at times. Most of the time, I think. At least half the time. Maybe a little more. I don't know. Yeah. yeah the, um, the, uh, well, I, I guess it makes sense to just go through uh, chronologically. Yeah. Let's uh, let's start this off here. Um, so, I mean, I found the opening, the opening narration and just very basic imagery very compelling. So, like, it, it opens on a really strong note where – Okay, so this woman is sitting on a boat in a fairly still pond or lake, something like that. She's not very far from the shore. Yeah, uh, she's just the back is her back is to the camera, and she's narrating, um, you know, these lines about, you know, I can't believe it happened, but I must accept that it happened, and I don't know if it's sanity or madness, but either way, I have to accept it, and some things like that that I should have paraphrased a little bit better, but I, I think that's the gist of it. Um, but they were they were good lines, you know, they were they were well delivered and. Chilling no, in well the room, right? well delivered, yeah. And you know, it's a very brief moment there, but then it, it kind of cuts away to something else, um, to to the beginning of the movie proper. But you're not exactly sure for a long time where this opening scene fits in with the main events of the film. Right. Yeah. You don't really know until the end that well, it is the end. You know, it's doing that looping thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we cut away from that, you know, they it cuts to you know, some people driving to us and they stopped at a cemetery. Uh, it's got you know, two men and a woman. Uh, it's unclear at this point if the woman is the same person we saw at the beginning. Uh, but basically, you know, this woman gets out. This is Jessica here. And, and they're in a cemetery taking a break from a road trip of some kind. And she goes to take some rubbings on some of the tombstones. Uh, they just it seems to be more of a random interest, like an anthropological interest than a connection to a particular loved one. Yeah, it seems like a hobby. Yep, and she's she's very exuberant about it too, and and the guys are just kind of standing back at the car, like acting as though they're just like, oh, let her get it out of her system, or you know, let her do her thing for a while while we take a break. <laughs> and so like, there's the the two guys kind of just hanging out. It's uh, we find out their names are uh, Woody and oh, who was the uh, other one? Duncan, Duncan, I guess. Yeah, Duncan. Uh, so so yeah, they're she just takes these interesting rubbings that that come back into play later in the film. And uh, has a strange encounter um, at the cemetery. I think she sees a, a mysterious blonde woman uh, lurking on the fringes of the cemetery, and uh, she just kind of perform. She f- kind of has this ominous function to her within the within the setting. Is how I would characterize it. Yeah, you're not really sure what she's there for, but it's ominous. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure she um, at least appears to disappear. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of our first uh, inkling that uh, Jessica might <clears throat> either be uh, mentally ill or there might be some sort of supernatural stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, but in any case, it seems to be an omen of some kind. And yeah, there, there's also an important bit of history that we learn in this um, open, well, this second scene here where, you know, she mentions, it's, you know, for the first time in months, I'm free uh, and I can start over. And so, you know, Pretty soon we, we learn that she has been institutionalized for some – I don't believe they ever describe it. But they for never some mental say, health. but you get the sense it might have been some – I mean, 
maybe low-level schizophrenia, like some kind of uh, auditory visual hallucination type thing. Yeah, yeah, because you, you pretty soon start hearing like whispers and and various various sensory intrusions that could or could not be part of the environment, and so they they make sure to introduce her inability to rely on her own perceptions uh, pretty early on. Um, yeah, and, there's a and, lot of interesting. Um, I mean, it can be done poorly, and it can affect the film. Uh, famously, there's the controversy about uh, Blade Runner, and I believe the original cut there was more like inner monologue stuff. Um, oh yeah, there's the voiceover versus the text. Yeah, on yeah, screen. yeah, yeah. I'm familiar uh, with that. But in terms of this film, I think the voiceover that's in her inner monologue, I think it works because it's sort of a as we go along it becomes like other people's voices and she starts to wonder like if they're her actual thoughts or if she's being intruded in some way or less maybe not the right you know if she's being swayed in some way with her thoughts yeah it makes sense for the story's premise and i i I didn't for a second think hey i would prefer this as a as scrolling text or something like that whereas blade runner i definitely would prefer the text I don't think I've seen the cut with the voiceover. I think I've only seen the text. I think I've seen both, but it's one of those things where it's been so long I can't remember. <laughs> I tend not to like it, though. Like, I hate it in Minority Report, which, I mean, there, there's some other issues, but that's... I don't think I've actually seen Minority Report. But, yeah, I mean, it can be like... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In David Lynch's uh, Dune, even though I like that film, I, I find it sort of getting in the way i don't know yeah. but it's such a weird movie it's hard to say yeah i mean who can say where to start solving the issues with dune uh and <laughs> but I, yeah i mean I, I saw it maybe like 20 years ago and i don't believe i've seen it since um but anyway but, yeah but anyway yeah, yeah let's scare jessica. jessica to death so <laughs> um there's a lot of moments in this that are like aggressively 70s <laughs> i don't know how else to describe it Woody's like um, out. like what's his face? Uh, well, Woody. Most of this movie, he's wearing like a tie with like overalls, sort of a thing, and a gas mask. And a get yeah, he's it's just weird. I mean, the other two is more, I guess, uh, like more normal seventies fashions, you know, like the style of dress. But like, he's just very odd with his clothing choices but that's obviously a 70s thing yeah yeah but you know they make a point of highlighting some of the bumper stickers on their car i think one of them says love and you know eventually one of the townspeople calls them hippies or something like that at the place that we soon find out they're moving to well i mean uh, also uh they're driving a hearse there's that there's that i guess we should address that too yeah huh? I, I forgot uh, to mention they're just driving a big black hearse and they it's sort of, I didn't know what to make of it. They come into town and they're just sort of like driving around. And I would say somewhat understandably, the older townsfolk are like, that's not cool. And they're just like, screw you, old man, that kind of a thing. And it's like, you just yeah, got here and you're already trying to alienate the townspeople. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's much they could do to avoid alienating the well, townspeople. Well, yeah, no, I know. But they, I mean, I don't know. They They definitely don't shy away from being very odd yeah yeah uh but you know they're, they're they leave the well first of all they, they pull over at the cemetery but there's a very brief couple of frames before they're shown on the road where you know they're loading up a large 
I guess coffin, it's the coffin that they're loading into the hearse, but they never really talk about that all that much, which was a very strange part of the, the film, I thought. Was, was it? Okay, a, I wasn't. Okay, now looking back, I'm not sure if that's a coffin. Or it looks like one, sort or of. Or if uh, it, yeah, that was that, um, the case for his, uh, what instrument did he play? Um, uh, was it an upright bass or something like that? Or Yeah, I mean, I. It was the size of an upright bass case, something like that. Yeah, I mean, had, I'm with you because I'm sort of like. I'd have to go back and double check, but I swear they were loading a coffin in, so. It's definitely framed to look that way, given that it's a hearse and it's a large I mean, if it was that case box. for the uh, the stand-up base, they, like, filmed it in a way where it looked like a coffin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that actually is a point that I'm still a little bit confused about myself. Uh, even, you know, it does come into play in, in terms of the, the props that are, that are used in significant moments later in the film, uh, but you just kind of breeze right past that because of how quickly it happens and you know it's on it's on the hearse is on the camera for a, a few frames and like a very brief cut but then we're in the cemetery doing the rubbings and jessica sees the mysterious woman and then they get on the ferry to go over to you know whatever farming community they're they're moving to so we they make sure to inform us that they have basically sunk a bunch of savings into this farmhouse uh called the bishop place uh and you know this is going to be for duncan who's the uh, well, Jessica's husband, who's driving the car, and, and basically they're moving out there, and Woody's going to help them get set up uh, and try to start over, because obviously the institutionalization, um, you know, has caused some, you know, phrase in their relationship of some kind. I mean, obviously they didn't see each other for a while if she was institutionalized. And... No, it's true, and they do, they mentioned that they had lived in New York City. Um, oh, yeah, they've left the city and they're coming to the sticks. Yeah, and I thought, for most of the movie, I thought maybe up... Well, I don't know what I thought. I, mean, I thought New, some part of New York, but uh, at one point there was a truck that's got a Massachusetts plate on it, I want to say. So okay. uh, it, it's probably, based on it being an island, it's probably somewhere around the Cape, something like that. Or maybe, okay. I don't know if there's anywhere in Western Mass that's really on the water. I mean, for now, I'm going to assume it's like somewhere along the ocean, maybe by... Maybe sort of in between the Cape and Central Mass. Okay, I was I was a little unsure about that myself. All, all I know is they mentioned a cove that borders on their property. So well, I mean, like the ferry makes me think it might be something like around Martha's Vineyard because there is a ferry that goes into that. But it's not okay. like it's not like a heavy duty ferry, so it might just be one of those towns that's like on the water that happens to have a a ferry. Could be. Uh, but yeah, that actually is a point of um, either ambiguity or confusion that comes back later that I want to raise uh, once we've gotten past more of the plot, uh, because it, it left me a little bit confused about the ending, to be honest with you. Um, and so I think, you know, if I can figure out some answers to that, it'll maybe change my perception of the movie. But uh, in any case, you know, they, they cross on this ferry. The, the ferryman is kind of stern and, and gruff and, you know, you're New England welcome, but there's a little bit extra to it. And, um, you know, that he... Like he asked them what's in the what's in the urn or something like that, and one of them answers his mother-in-law, and so it's it's unsure if like they're actually transporting deceased remains of some kind in this hearse, or if he's just. I took it as they were just being smart asses. Yeah, I, I kind of thought so, but you know, they leave that kind of vague in a way. Um, but they pull into this town uh, that's apparently the closest small town to where the the farmhouse is. That is mostly um, old people. And it's mostly old people. You got your old fogies sitting out on the porch of the general store, calling them hippies. Uh, and then we start seeing some, you know, I think it's auditory hallucinations from Jessica's perspective. 
um, a voice asking why she came here. Um, and yeah, so, like, I believe so. So like, I, I think it's important early on that they, they associate these voices that she's hearing with the town and that the voice has some disembodiment from her. So she's not, it, it's a third person of some kind. It's either. It's yeah. Either it's, it's not always her own voice that we hear as her inner monologue. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, it's ambiguous, but you, you start to wonder, well, is that, you know, is she still, is she still vaguely schizophrenic? Is that like, you know, some other kind of personality? Um, the, I, I didn't interpret it as a split personality because honestly, if you actually go into the research on that, it's very, very Not rare. Really. Anyone actually ever has that. Yeah. I think it's yeah. much, it's usually just a schizophrenic person that just thinks there's someone else. Um, uh-huh. but yeah, that's kind of an aside, but anyway, um, so yeah, she's hearing these voices and they, they have their moment where they drive their hearse around in front of the old fogies and, uh, old fogies call them hippies and <laughs> the hippies in turn go, it's, it's a, you know, we bought it cause it's cheap kind of a thing. Like, okay. But, um, but why was it so cheap? Perhaps is there any local folklore that might be relevant to the price here? <laughs> Which uh, you know, we, we soon hear whisperings of it, you know, being a place that belongs to a family that belonged to a family called the Bishops, uh, and there's something about that place and family that raises people's hackles or is is frightening or there's yeah, it's like the local uh, it's like the local haunted house type of a thing. It's the local folklore. Um, we find this out later, but since I'm remembering it now, basically there was a, a family and their 20 year old daughter who was to be married, uh, ended up drowning to death. But then there were rumors that she was still around as a vampire. Yeah. They're very light on that backstory component of it, which I, I found a little bit too light on the backstory, because I, I think that if you're going to have something where, you know, some piece of folklore turns out to quote unquote be true. Um, it kind of needs at least a little bit more underneath it. You know, whether or not what happens in the movie turns out to match what the local lore was is one thing, but I just feel like there needed to be. Yeah. There could have been like one more scene where they sort of actually went into it. Like, um, in particular, the vampire part, because it's, it's sort of, it does become such a big part of the movie, but it's so sort of vaguely set up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even really remember hearing that the word vampire or having a suggestion that that was. There was like one line. line in the entire film where they said, "There's rumors she was a vampire." Yeah, uh, but th- okay. that's about it. Yeah, got it. So yeah, I just had a general vague impression that the bishops are to be feared and there's something cursed about the place. But I, yeah, I don't even remember vampirism I mean, being when mentioned. We were early early days in the movie. I, I thought it was going to be a haunted house thing. That sort yeah. of seemed like where they were going with it. I was thinking it was going to be more of a slasher because I, I've read little bits and pieces about it, about it being like a psychological thriller. And yeah, I guess yeah. I took certain plot pieces and stitched them together into what I was imagining as a slasher. And I was actually glad that it didn't turn out to be a slasher because I, I think I don't know, it's it's not really my subgenre for the most part. But I, I think that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it the, I don't think it is a slasher, but depending on the interpretation, it, it could have been a slasher. It just doesn't yeah. it's not really filmed like that. It's, yeah, it's a cousin of it, maybe, in, in some way, in terms of, you know, one by one, some of these characters are getting knocked off for mysterious reasons that tie back to the past. And 
but you know there there's at least hints of a, uh, of the supernatural and suggestions of it fairly early on that are usually you know usually your slashers are confined to a realist um explanation by the end of it yeah Whether... usually they are um but so we we get to this house and it's this very nice idyllic farmland that's got a is it a lake or a pond i mean there's a body of water um, it's a body of water that includes a cove they, they okay so it must be okay it's actually attached so that's probably more like a well, a pond, I guess. It looks like a pond, but yeah, I don't know. I always get that confused, but I want to say a pond connects to a... Well, it doesn't have to connect to a different body of water. Whatever, it's a body of water that connects to the <laughs> cove. And, um, you know, they yeah. they start unloading um, their stuff into the house, and uh, we get this sort of... This moment where you, you wonder, oh, is Jessica having another hallucination or does she hallucinate? Because we see this woman kind of running by at the top of the stairs, but her husband, um, Duncan, is like, oh, I saw that too. Um, yeah. So that's your first – I mean, I think this is important because it also establishes that not – even though it's kept vague, not everything that Jessica sees or hears might be in her head. It might actually right. happen. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things uh, about the fact that not only was she institutionalized for a parent schizophrenia or something similar is that she has this deep need to be believed because she's had so many situations where she's just not believed because of her mental illness, which right. I think is, has re-traumatized her every time it happens. And so there's all these asides where she's like desperate about whether to say something, if people will believe her. And like she specifically says, says this a lot where please believe me or something like that. And, you know, you can tell that each of these events where there's uncertainty is potentially re-traumatizing to her, which is part of the, I guess that's part of where the title comes from because of how much of this is built around how much of her fear is legitimate versus how much of it is, is the mental illness. Well, they're both legitimate, but you know, what's happening in the external world. For whatever reason, I thought going into this based on the title alone, like, it's going to be some sort of like elaborate prank thing. Yeah. I was thinking that too, along with like a slasher setup, um, which would be something like, um, well, I don't know. Prom night isn't exactly an elaborate prank because a bunch of people die in that one, but you know, something along those lines, but that is not this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say that this movie managed to elude most of my expectations at most of its key moments. I mean, yeah, I'm I, glad I didn't check the IMDb before I watched and went into it blind and didn't read anything because I had no idea there were even vampires until someone says there's rumor she was a vampire. Yeah, yeah, same here. Uh, like, I heard something that alluded to vampire. It, it might have been a different line, but yeah, it's very understated. Um, and um, but yeah, I saw it mentioned more specifically in one of the reviews uh, that I read after. I'm like, wow, okay. I mean, I noticed that, but I wasn't really thinking about it. Like, if I had read the IMDb and checked the writers and saw that it was inspired by Carmilla, I would have known immediately, oh, it's a vampire thing. Yeah, I think that's probably why he's uncredited on a lot of the on the officials. Stuff yeah, like that's true. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we, uh, so uh, Duncan and Jessica, you know, they, they track down this woman who was, um, we find out has been squatting in the house. Her name is Emily. Of course it is. Um, mm -hmm. Played by Mary Claire Costello. Um, I thought she did an all right job. Yeah, uh, I think acting wise, you know, the guys are kind of unremarkable, but yeah, Emily, I will Jessica, say that Emily and Jessica are pretty strong performances, and they're more interesting characters. It's it's almost in a way, and you know, this goes back to the Carmilla thing, of course. Um, are you familiar with the story? 
Not re- not other than the, the I Vegas. I mean, all I, I don't, I haven't read the story, but I've seen stuff that was based on it. Basically, it's a, a lesbian vampire thing. It's like this uh, vampire woman that sort of seduces younger girls or other women to turn into vampires. Yeah. Um, so that made sense on, you know, looking back. And that's, I think that's maybe why they had the relationship between Emily and Jessica be so kind of at the forefront. Cause in yeah. a way you almost get in a way there almost seems to be more chemistry between in you know, whatever capacity between Jessica and Emily than Emily has with her husband. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the source material is, lesbian characters but in this case there's so much seductiveness from emily aimed at the men or at least at it's Jessica's sort of like husband. all around yeah but it yeah, is I, mostly I, aimed at the men yeah i honestly i think i might have preferred it had a stronger component of of that queer element um in the film than they did I think it, yeah it that is the one thing where i was like that's interesting you base this on carmilla because there's like nothing in this that that I would overtly go, oh, it's Carmilla. Yeah. But that happens a lot, you know, especially with the the um, Hammer adaptations. They always kind of go off the rails and it's very loose adaptations. So, but anyway, yeah, yeah. so they were introduced to Emily, who is very weird from Jump. She's basically just like, yeah. I've been living here. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we bought the place. Well, she does make sure to say that she thought it was abandoned, which ties into the backstory of the house itself and and what's going on with what we find out about Emily. Um, but in any case, they've made sure to characterize the small group of friends as hippies, and so they're pretty receptive to just letting yeah, the squatters stay there. Yeah, just going with the flow. So they're, they let yeah. her, they at least decide, all right, let's let her stay for like a day or two uh, yeah. since she's been living here. And, um, you know, they kind of introduce each other. Uh, admittedly, these parts of the film or this part of the film sort of lost me a little bit. Yeah. Cause it's, it, it's very of... like, I guess the word would be like meandering, you know, cause you know, I, was, I understand you want to have your dinner scene. where We're introducing who Emily is and sort of everybody's settling in, but like, it, yeah, it's aggressively seventies. Like someone starts playing the acoustic guitar and singing out of nowhere. And, and yeah. then, uh, my note, my note is literally just dinner and music. Like it feels like nothing important was happening there. Really not, the- yeah. And then like randomly, Duncan. I mean, basically, it it feels like they had her start singing so that we could establish Duncan was in the Philharmonic and used to play the upright bass. Well, still does, but. Uh, but so he he comes over and starts playing and. Very odd scene, yeah. And all the while, Jessica's sitting there and. There is one important part where she's staring at the meat and like the, the voice in her head is like, it's blood, Jessica, it's blood. Like it doesn't move the story forward, but. Well, it, it keeps things consistent where, you know, pretty much every scene, there's at least one thing that registers to her as either, you know, there's a dispossessed voice coming in here trying to rattle my nerves or there's something going, there's something going on either in her head or possibly supernaturally in pretty much every scene even if it's relatively minor and just a stray voice that you hear in the background. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, admittedly, this wasn't... I, I feel like maybe the beginning of this film sometimes has trouble getting going. Definitely. I mean, really, the first hour 
feels like not a whole lot's going on. And yeah, and you could, you know, on the one hand, <clears throat> excuse me, on the one hand, I think that's, it's important to establish things, but I think sometimes um, films might, well, that's the weird thing about this movie, though. They don't really establish much, and yet there's that hour of not much happening. <laughs> like, if they yeah. had took time for her to, I don't know, even though it's cliche, she goes to the local library or talks to historians or something like that, that would have, like... I don't know. I go back and forth about whether I would have wanted that. I mean, I do like that the film is vague. Yeah, it's just a little too vague in places. Um. Yes, but anyway, so... We we cut to Jessica and Duncan, and they're in their bedroom, and uh, Jessica is deciding where to hang these grave rubbings she's done oh yeah actually uh, real real quick before before we get to that i wanted to mention one other thing if i could um yeah they, they tried to have that seance which i, I thought was actually oh, right yeah that was really weird after dinner they um emily just goes let's have a seance and uh you can tell <laughs> so, that like duncan's a little like could we not my my wife just, just got out of a mental institution there's that too. But yeah, at some point I made a note that, you know, one of the more interesting voices we hear says something like, Jessica, we're here, uh, while she's looking at a photo of a child, um, I believe from the house. And, you know, she hears voices talking about the bishops. So that's kind of an escalation of something that was introduced, but, um, but very, I don't know, very quietly introduced from the beginning. But now it's kind of escalating a little bit with the seance. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, that's all I wanted to mention. Yeah, yeah. So they have the seance. Um, I mean, nothing of note happens. They just have the seance. Yeah. Other than the, you know, Jessica's still hallucinating, um, auditory hallucinations, which may or may not be hallucinations. Uh, yep. But but anyway, yeah. So we're we cut to Jessica and Duncan. Um, they're in their bedroom. Jessica's hanging the grave rubbings and. Uh, more or less it you know I, I think they they're go to have sex and then we cut to the next day yeah I, I do think it's important that she mentions that one of the one of the rubbings she took has to do with the slave narrative where she talks about a slave that somehow earns enough money to buy his own freedom and you kind of get the sense that this is going to be tied into any some of her struggles that are going to be happening throughout the rest of the movie where you know this is fight for freedom essentially i, I don't yeah, think that yeah. it, it it doesn't hold up all that well as a comparison to slavery, really, because I mean this is a completely you know it's a bunch of white people first of all, and it's a very right. situation. Uh, so I don't know that if if they're going for like a comparison between one person getting themselves free of a situation and another person that has to get themselves free of a difficult situation, I don't think that's a good comparison. That I mean, I think you might even on. be giving it too much credit. I think they just thought it would be interesting well, if we had this grave rubbing be like a former slave. Maybe I am. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I felt like they were doing that for a very particular purpose. Though. I mean, I do think there's supposed to be the freedom thing because so much of the film is about Jessica and she's worried about her freedom because it does, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but at one point, uh, Duncan, her husband says, maybe you should go back to the hospital. And she's very adamant about not wanting to do that. Yeah. She was there for six months, I think. I don't know. If yeah, she that. was there for a while. I mean, it wasn't. Excuse me, it wasn't like a short, it wasn't a 72-hour hold. Like, she was there for a decent amount of time, so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, after the um, 
you know, after they go into the bedroom and they, they show uh, what they show Woody and Emily talking by themselves and Woody tries to kiss her, uh, she resists and then they go for a walk. And it, it's very much kind of a contrast of, okay, well, this guy obviously is, he just met this woman and he's already trying to put the moves on her. Uh, and he kind of is acting as though she's approved because she rebuffs him a little bit, but then like they go outside and very quickly the mood changes and they start to make out or whatever. Like it, it was like, okay, you're, you're, you got a problem with this like now, but like three minutes later outside, it's, it's very different. I, that, that part was a little strange to me. Um, yeah, there's like but, certain decisions where I feel like maybe it was on a script level or an editing level. Like they just thought, okay, well we have this scene going into this scene, but they might not have, like maybe some of the dialogue was ad libbed or something. I don't know. It's some. There are certain scenes where the connective tissue doesn't feel as strong as it could have been. Yeah, the the impression I had was that like okay, they're inside and they're they're barely know each other, and then he's trying to kiss her. But then when they're outside, it's like five minutes later, but they act like they now know each other so much better because they've walked together outside for a couple hundred feet. Yeah, uh, I mean okay, it's probably giving like, the again giving the film too much credit, but maybe it was a thing of like she didn't want to do it in a house with the people already there. Um, maybe, but they didn't really do a good job of like establishing that. Yeah. Because you're right. It is like, she doesn't want to do it. And then five minutes later, she's like, well, now I do. Yeah. And it doesesn't really even feel like well, well drawn sexual tension. Like it doesn't even feel very sexual. No, there's like, like there's like the chemistry of like a dead fish and a wall between these two. I mean, I kiss those things all the time. What are you talking about? Um, Uh, no, but yeah, but, I mean, it's, you know, I guess it's mainly there to establish, like, Emily's supposed to be, like, a seductress-type character who's able to lure... Well, I don't know that they did this well enough, but you know, eventually we figure out she's, like, able to seduce men. Yeah, but it's kind of baffling exactly how. Um, I mean, I guess just I guess just through hypnotism and, and so forth, which... I mean, again, this is hopping forward, but... Obviously, full spoilers, we always do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, so I interpret it as she's a vampire and she's using that sort of vampire hypnotism on people. Yeah. Yeah, but that's just kind of a thing that happens gradually. You don't really it, – it, it is pretty good at, at sort of showing that she's not this all-powerful vampire. Like, she has some serious limitations and – No, and I mean, indeed, she, it's good at subverting your expectations because she's out in the daylight all the time. Well, there's that too, yeah. yeah. So that, at least initially, you, I guess vampire doesn't hop in your head because you're like, well, but she's walking around in the day. like, And she doesn't have fangs or anything, so. Yeah, and they don't really show any of the, um, like, well, the other thing is, like, most vampire stories have a lot more sex in it, like, or just at least the tension feels a lot stronger than it does in this movie. Yeah, like, there's more of an erotic... Um, charge that I, I think isn't, which, ironically enough, isn't in this movie, even though it's based on Carmilla, which is very erotically charged. Like, that's the thing it's famous for, is that it's this early yeah. story of vampirism uh, between this older woman and these younger women. I, I believe it was one of those things where I don't know if it's explicitly stated in the text because it was so old. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's one of those things now we know, oh, it's like a lesbian story. But back then... I want to say they had to sort of couch it and like, well, she's just a vampire. That's why she preys on these young women. Uh, but yeah. we don't really get that in this. 
Yeah, I, I do think that they could have made Emily. Ultimately, she doesn't feel very interesting by the no, end. No, I mean, I wish that she had been more interesting in various and ways. I, I feel like that might be on a script level because if she had had some more interesting kind of dynamic dialogue or scenes or things to do, you know, like, I mean, a lot of, I don't know. Again, I'm on the fence because like a lot of the kind of cut, like we'll do cutaway stuff where she ends up, she's out. Emily will be outside with Duncan. Um, Jessica's husband and Jessica will see them go into a truck and drive off. And it's sort of implied that they might be hooking up, but we never see it. Yeah. There's, there's just enough there to, to work for the, the jealousy component where, you know, it's eating away at Jessica's insecurities and, and magnifying the rift that exists between her and her husband. Um, it, I mean, that part I kind of thought was good where it's, it's mostly left to her imagination, but there's enough behavior there that she has a reason to believe something might be going on. So that part I was kind of okay with, um, especially since that comes a little bit later when things have escalated considerably. Um, yeah, but I mean, I do understand. She just hangs around and does weird stuff every once in a while. I do understand wanting to do these little quick cutaway kind of things. It's clearly intentional because you wonder, well, was that real or did she hallucinate that? Yeah. Yeah, and is she attributing the right kind of significance to it since it was just a very brief minor moment that maybe means Right, they might have just gone into town to get food or, I don't know, just to... I don't even know what else they do in town, so I guess just get food. That's not much. (laughs) Um, But anyway, yeah, so hopping back to the chronology, um, it's funny because not a lot really actually happens in this movie. Yeah. I mean, they go swimming uh, in the cove, which, you know, this is kind of a, it's not an inciting event, but it's maybe a oh, secondary. Right. Well, they do, they, yeah, they have this scene to establish there's this, you know, cove and um, they swim in there and everyone's sort of goofing off and having fun. And Jessica sees this, she thinks she sees this figure under the water and she just sort of sees the hair and it looks like the figure's in a white dress. Yeah, and they make a point of making it look like a reddish-orange hair. Uh, and really, I mean, I, I guess it's okay to say at this point, you know, it, it's not. It's a pretty similar shade of hair compared to Emily. Uh, right, yeah. It's also underwater and very vague, and she's not sure she saw what she saw. But she gets spooked either way, uh, and she, you know, her sudden terror kind of disrupts the, the playful mood. And so that's another example of her, you know, ruining everybody's good time, which she's always afraid of, you know, saying the wrong thing and... and adding something seriousness where it's just in her head. Um, so, but anyway, they check it out and nobody really finds anything. If I recall correctly. No, and, um, she's like, there's, she says, I mean, she's also isn't sure. So she says, I, I thought I saw something in the water, but she says maybe it was a shark and I don't know. Oh yeah. But she does plead with them to believe her that she saw something. At least that was an, another point where that came back. Right. Yeah. Because I think also the character, um, and the actress does a good job. Uh, I keep blanking on Oh, Zora Lampert. She does a good job of giving you that sort of... Um, she's so adamant, like, you have to believe me. You almost wonder, is that her just sort of desperately wanting to believe herself? Like, desperately yeah. not wanting to be seeing things again? Yeah, I mean, it's. A t- I'm sure it's. It's partly motivated by the terror of the isolation that such a condition has to has to breed. You know? I, mean, I mean, they've I mean, gone through so much trouble too to finally 
try to get her life back on track and find a new place to live. And so she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to have to go back to what she's lived through already. And she also doesn't want to, yeah, she doesn't want to screw up everybody else's time. That's Um, true. Uh, she also sees that woman in white again, uh, who was in that cemetery that just kind of showed up, didn't say anything, and was kind of ominous. But she sees her again in the woods around the cove. Uh, I don't think she mentions it, though. I don't remember. But I, I think she keeps that to herself. I think she keeps it to herself, yeah. Um, but anyway, let's see. Chronologically, after they go swimming, I want to say they they start going through the house looking for things to sell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they so they mostly go through the attic, although they, you know they go through the whole house, but they focus a lot on the attic. There's a lot of old family memorabilia from the bishops, uh, a lot of you know a couple of old family photos that um, are given particular significance. They just kind of loom over the activities in the attic, um, and they also find uh, Jess finds a knife. Uh, Jessica finds a knife in the attic uh, and some nice clothes as well. So the knife is important too. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's important. Um, again, like you, I, I sort of wish they had used this to kind of maybe just do a tiny bit more exposition on the history of the house because they're sort of setting it up. Like, here's the, here's a picture of them and this is what she looked like. And, but it's sort of, yeah, it's just peripheral. That's sort of it. And again, I mean, I guess. I guess one could argue they did that intentionally because if they established it too much, maybe you would think they were trying to come down on this is really happening as opposed to this might not be happening. Like, I mean, giving it significance might detract from your view of it as her just hallucinating everything. That's true, but the trade-off of that is there's a lot less suspense uh, in the audience uh, is is how I felt. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm with you on that, but... But anyway, yeah, there's a very brief scene in the attic where they establish this is what the family looks like. They hold on the picture, which is important because it's very obvious that the girl in the in the picture is Emily. At least it was uh, to me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I noticed that right away. Like, it, it's pretty, pretty obvious. It's they one of those movie obvious. logic things where I feel like in real life, like, literally everyone would have been like, oh, that's you. But yeah, in movie land, it's like, oh, she looks a little like you. And it's like, that, that looks exactly the same. That is the same actress in a different costume. Basically. But anyway, so they go into town um, trying to sell these antiques. Uh, they talk to some of the old fogies who basically say, even if we did have an antique shop, I wouldn't tell you where it is. Yeah, they're pretty openly hostile uh, to to these newcomers, and it feels very Shirley Jackson-ish whenever they go into town. Yeah, it does. That's true. That's a good comparison. Um, But they do end up finding an antique dealer uh, who – I think this actor did a good job. Um, He's sort of this uh, over-the-top antique salesman. So they come in. He's another outsider. What's that? He's another outsider, too. He moved here, and he, he set up shop. I think he was in the city, in New York oh, City. Oh, yeah. I think he was also from New York City, yes. Um, and they sort of use him as a mirroring for him to be like, yeah, I got sick of living in the city, so I came out to the, the sticks to relax. Um, but yep. so he's uh, he's going into their um, 
the stuff he has to sell. At one point, they hold on this lamp that ha- that literally goes nowhere. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I thought they might do something with it because he was like, "This is called a lamp of evil, and it's got these flowers on it." And Jessica, yeah, flowers of evil, flowers of evil, right? And Jessica's staring at it like, "Doesn't look evil to me," you know. She's got that monologue going. I mean, I guess if there's a significance to that, it's maybe a mirroring between the the evil flower lamp and Emily who doesn't look evil in theory. Yeah. I'm not really sure where they were going with it though, to be honest. Same here. I mean, there's, you know, there's not really any symbolic associations I can think of, of flowers that are, that's extended throughout the rest of the movie other than, you know, the association of flowers with hippies, you know, flower children or whatever, but it doesn't really hold up. I mean, maybe it's supposed to be the house since the house is on this like lovely orchard and it's very pastoral. But then the house is yeah. evil. Yeah, I mean, they do. But have if it is that they didn't also, again, this is me sort of like filling in the gaps on that. They didn't do a great job of establishing it. Yeah. Now, they did deliver that um, brief monologue with her looking at the lamp in a way that made it feel like it was going to be significant later. And I don't feel like it was. I don't think. No. But anyway, so this is mainly seen to establish there's another guy in town who's from New York City and they're able to sell him some of their antiques for ends up being about $250, which I think in the seventies would have been a decent amount. Yeah, it better be because they, they literally say they have no money left after using everything to buy up the place. So that's part right, of why yeah, Woody's I mean, out. It's sort of, you get the sense, maybe they're going to sell the apples because, um, because Woody is constantly, and honestly, this is some of the most horrifying shit in the entire movie to me, but He's got this gas mask and he's driving and spraying all the apple trees with this like pesticide or something. Um, like almost constantly. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so they get the money from the antique dealer. Um, she, but it's important there too. I want to mention that uh, they were going to sell one of the family photos um, to the antique dealer and Emily tries to persuade them not to sell it. Uh, which, you know, since we have a striking similarity in one of the family members to Emily, hey, that, that adds up to something else, it seems like. Uh, and then, you know, there's another line that was was particularly important, I think, when, uh, you know, Jess says that she wants her to stay longer because she was they were supposed to be dropping off Emily in town for her to go their separate ways. But Jess wants her to stay longer. And Emily says, I won't go away. I'll never go away. Uh, and so, you know, there you go. OK, well, she's was at this place from the beginning. There's obviously some deep tie to this house that this woman has. Yeah. Um, and I, again, this is another thing where I felt like, oh, this will come back around, but it sort of didn't. They show the antique dealer closing up his shop, like pretty much as soon as they leave. Um, and I thought this will mm-hmm. tie back, but it sort of doesn't. I mean, I guess if you're supposed to infer anything, maybe... Maybe there's some sort of, um, uh, maybe he's been talking to someone who was like, sell some antiques to these people. And like, as soon as they, you know, as soon as he buys their, or rather buys some antiques, as soon as he buys them, he closes the shop. So not the greatest business model. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, he's, he's told them, I think a little bit of the local lore about the bishops in the meantime. And so it, pretty soon you get the impression that maybe he's, spoke a little too much to them, uh, you know, from one outsider to another about what's going on locally. Cause all the townspeople are really weird. 
yeah. there's this weird woman squatting there. So there's obviously something cursed about this town as well as the house. And, uh, you know, you, on the way back from the antiques, um, they stop somewhere to buy eggs, if I remember right. Maybe I'm slightly in the wrong no, order. Yeah, but they, they go I mean, to it's eggs. around then, and um, Jessica's there, and the farmer basically tells her, go pick out your own eggs. And it's sort of a... She's sort of getting freaked out by the chickens, um, which is fair. Chickens can be kind of freaky. Yeah. And then they go back to the car, and some of the local town folk are just hanging on the car in a really... Dare, you know threatening way like it's it's one of those Kate fear kind of things where they're not breaking the law but the personal space violation and the the crowding that they do like they, all the locals just crowd around them as they're trying to get into the car yeah. but they at the same time they're acting like nothing's weird about what they're doing so that was you know one of the better parts of the movie is when they have the townsfolk being creepy Shirley Jacksonish characters um yeah and it's a bunch of old men so that's that's sort of creepy too these, everybody's got these weird bandages on and it's you know uh, an unusually high number of people that seem to have significant injuries that are bandaged here. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, so they go back to the house. Um, so I, I'm sort of vague uh, on the order of events from here. I mean, I know ultimately where it ends up, but yeah, well, here's where I, th- here's where I do have a note about the vampire remark. You know, it, it's, it's around the time. I think it's the antique dealer that tells them this, you know, um, you know, it was Abigail Bishop was the name of the woman. Oh, who right. Yeah. So coat. it might be the antique dealer that says the vampire thing. So, yeah, that would make sense given what happens with his shop and what happens. Yeah. In a and then he immediately after. leaves after. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, we learned that someone from that family drowned in the cove behind the house back in 1880 named Abigail Bishop. They never found the body. And some say she's still alive and she's a vampire or something like that. So this is where we kind of get that one solid mention of the, the, the local lore around, around this house. Right. But this um, is at like the hour mark and it's only an hour and a half film. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like this film well enough, but I do think, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's because I'm coming from a modern perspective and this was made in 71, but I just kind of felt like, Oh my God, get on with it. Like if it's a vampire <laughs> thing, please just do the vampire thing. Yeah. And they do, yeah, so, though. I mean, I mean. <laughs> they go for it eventually. It just it takes a while. <laughs> um, but they drive back after the antiques and the uh, the ordeal at the uh, the chicken uh, chicken factory, chicken factory, the egg, wherever they buy the eggs from. Yeah, and, uh, the the farm or whatever. The farm. Oh uh, yeah, it's a farm. Uh, and so they they show Duncan fishing, and they they do another shot of the redhead body, uh, the redhead's body underwater, and then after that they immediately cut to the woman in, in white from the cemetery motioning at Jess uh, to come with her away from, from that area by the cove where the, the fishing's going on. Right, yeah. And uh, so they go on a little chase through the woods. Um, you know, the, this this woman in white has really has still not said anything. She's just beckoning, and we hope that Jessica's interpreting her signs correctly. I mean, correctly honestly, I don't think she says a single word in this entire movie, does she? No, they, they later make a point of saying that she can't speak, so she oh, appears okay, to be yeah. mute as either a medical condition or something, you know, some other reason. Um, but wherever this mysterious woman leads Jessica to, Jessica sees the antique dealer dead, uh, kind of under this little waterfall in the woods kind of thing. Um, and then the, the woman in white is kind of up overlooking that area. But then when Jess, Jessica shows Duncan, you know, the body's gone. Uh, they still see the girl and they chase the girl to ask her why she's been following them. Uh, and this is when they find out that the girl is mute. 
uh, and yeah. Emily shows up and the girl runs away. So there's obviously, obviously Emily and the girl recognize each other when they all confront one another. Right. Yeah. And the girl. Um. But yeah. So we're getting we're kind of actually getting into the vampire stuff now where we find this antique dealer dead and then his body disappears and um, yeah, things like that. So I, I thought this was one of the better scenes. You know, this is when it really kind of starts to feel like an actual horror movie. Whereas yeah, I think, I think this now. is when it actually starts to like come into its own in terms of being, I, I, this is from basically the hour mark on. That's when I sort of understood like, okay, this might be why people have a reverence for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so so now they they go back. There's another dinner scene with Jessica doubting herself, and for whatever reason, she becomes convinced that Emily has seduced Duncan and that she has Duncan. And they're kind of getting back to the fact that there seems to be some rift in the marriage that is being downplayed on the surface. Um, yeah. This, this is one of her insecurities that that she's going to be left alone. And uh, you know, when they're in bed together after dinner. He encourages her to go back to the city to see a doctor, and it feels like a really just kind of cold way of putting it. Like they've just upended their life, and now he's telling her to go back to where they came from uh, when they had just talked about starting over. And she really has. Yeah, so you get. I think they do that intentionally, so you wonder, oh, is he sleeping with Emily? Yeah, it's very abrupt. So it feels like he's changed his character in some way. And, um, you know, so she yells at him to just go ahead and leave her, and she starts panicking. They decide to sleep apart. and you know, significantly, I, we did forget to mention earlier, she finds a mole, um, I think, in the cemetery. Oh, right, yeah. She the, the, she finds a mole at the cemetery and decides to keep it as a pet. Yeah, and, in a uh, tiny-ass jar. Like, that was a bit cruel, I think, uh, what she was she was keeping it. Like, the whole thing was very weird. She'll have those inner monologue kind of whispery. And it's just like, feed the vole. I don't even remember. It was just like, cute vole. And I was just like, all right, fine. Um, but then, you know, while 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 they're sleeping apart, the, the camera does kind of a giallo-ish um, shot of just a knife. Yeah, because we just get this hand with a knife. Yeah, just slowly going into yep. a cookie jar. Yeah, yeah, and there's a little bit of blood on it. Um, and then we cut to... I'm still a little. I'm not sure if Jessica came and found the mole dead, or whether it was already dead in her hand. Um, well, they before that they they show Emily walking next to Duncan uh, in the nighttime, and you know they it's either I forget if they show it specifically, but they very strongly suggest that they actually do have sex, but you don't really know if it's right, really happening yeah. uh, or if this is just part of uh, Jessica's insecurity. Uh, but then, yeah, around this time is when she finds the dead mole. And uh, she thinks whoever killed the mole also killed the antique dealer, which, I mean, I guess in that situation, you I mean, might put those two together, but... Uh, maybe? I don't know. Really that seems demons. like... I love animals, don't get me wrong, but, like, killing a killing a mole is not the same as killing a full-grown man. Yeah, yeah, a little different. Um, but, you know, it's around this time when we, we first really see violence you know they, well they should they don't actually depict the the mole being killed but obviously it's it's happened in the plot uh, right it's implied it's getting stabbed to death yeah. yeah and duncan is talking more familiarly with emily and kissing on her if i remember right um it, it's very now it's like either he's under emily's spell or they are actually having an affair and there's there's more strongly suggested stuff going on between the two of them um that's making jessica think that he's leaving her I think. Yeah, and uh, I forgot to, I think I mentioned this briefly, but in between um, 
better or worse, the character of Woody, it just seems like his role from basically the 45-minute mark on is that he spreads these pesticides. He drives his tractor and spreads these pesticides on the apples. That, that's more or less what he does. That and he's just kind of a sounding board there for people to be able to talk to and give the audience some exposition, I think. Give, give it a little bit of an outsider perspective. Like, he seems to not really, like, he doesn't really seem to be particularly supportive or against Jessica. He's just kind of there. Like, he's like, oh, okay, well, this happens to her on occasion, I guess, whatever. Like, he's not really particular. he's pretty neutral seeming. Yeah, he's not that invested. I think to him, he's more like, well, let's focus on the apples because that's what's going to make us the money. Yeah. Yeah, so he's he's spraying pesticides, but you know, after all this is going on, um, you know, Emily is up in the attic because she has kind of, like, or not Emily, Jessica's up in the attic again, uh, while Duncan is like with Emily for a bit, but then Emily comes up yeah. and confronts her in the attic, um, and talk about the woman in the bishop picture, and she mentions, hey, this woman looks like it looks like you or uh, Emily. I forget if Emily says that that woman looks like me or Jessica says it looks like her, but. They make it I think expensive. Jessica says that looks like you, and Emily says, "Well, it's so old, it could look like anybody." And then Jessica goes, "I mean, it looks like you." Yeah. But they make it explicit. And she says something about it's the eyes. Oh, that's right. That's right. That makes sense. And you know, connected to the eyes, you know, Emily is basically hypnotizing Jessica now because Jessica is afraid of this woman and thinks that she's stealing her husband and all this stuff. But for whatever reason, she consents to go down to the the cove for a swim with Emily, like they're just friends and they're going to go hang out. Uh, and so, well, though she does make a point to say the water sort of scares me. True. True. Um, but you get the feeling that she's being coerced in some way, even though you can't really tell exactly how, I, I think they do make the, the hypnot the hypnosis aspect of vampirism a little bit. They do. And I will say when they're okay. So right before they go swimming, when they're sitting on this dock by the cove, it's probably the only overt, kind of lesbian stuff I noticed yeah. in this where um, Jessica's there and um, Emily's like, basically let me put sunblock on you. And she starts sort of like caressing her cheeks and stuff. And Jessica's like, okay, nope, we got it. It's good. Yeah, but, it's, and she just keeps... but it's chalked up in this friendliness that Jessica's having a hard time standing up for herself and remembering that, you know, this, she's freaking out about this woman uh, and she's just having a hard time being able to break away from it or being able to put a stop to it. So it's unclear if, if that's because of her own lack of self-confidence or if it's because Emily has this hypnotic vampire stuff going on, but they, they make it ambiguous on, about that matter as well as a bunch of other stuff. And I think that that's effective. Um, especially yeah, it is. But again, I think that's like, it ties back to the sor the Carmilla source material, um, which, yeah, that part is effective, even though they did zap any type of actual sexuality out of it. Yeah. Maybe not any type, but most of it. There's a little uncomfortable sexiness, right? Well, not sexiness, sexuality on display because I, I think that it's supposed to be uncomfortable for Jessica and the viewer, but it's also supposed to be at least a little bit seductive in a way. Because, like, I think we're supposed we're supposed to be unclear if she's being hypnotized by the fact that Emily is acting friendly, or or at least yeah, sexually um, uh, assertive or flirtatious. Yeah, I mean, this uh, just uh, I like the sunblock part, but the, it gets a little. She just pushes her in the water, which I just laughed at. It was funny and also terrifying, um, but it, it's an interesting way of like. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an yeah, because it's like seemingly a friendly way of like, ha ha ha, go in the water, but then she starts doing that. Like, is she joking around? Because she's like pushing her head under the water. It's 
it's just malicious enough and just playful enough that you can't really be sure, but it's probably malicious, I guess is how, but I mean, to the point. Yeah. And then afterwards, um, Emily takes care to be like, I'm sorry. I was just playing around. It's okay. Yeah. So there's sort of a gas. I mean, there's a lot of gaslighting that occurs, even though I don't know if anyone's intentionally gaslighting Jessica in this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I think probably Emily has some kind of supernatural ability, but it's it's not clearly delineated. Right, but yeah, so um, I believe from here, Jessica just starts running because she's... Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I skipped a whole... So Jessica gets closer to the shore and she looks back and um, Emily's just gone. Mm-hmm. And we get the whispers in her head, like, she's gone. She was never here, kind of a thing. Um, and then we see this figure in the water again, and it comes out of the water. And it's, you know, it's obviously Emily, and she's in the white dress. Yeah, I think they all, if I remember right, they alternate shots, uh, juxtaposing, like, the real, quote-unquote, Emily in the red tank top with the one in the old garb that's coming out of the water from, from the spot that Jessica saw, presumably a dead body, earlier. I think so, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is when Jessica, and I, you know, in between the drowning attempts and the playfulness, this is when she uh, she runs back to the house. Right, yeah, she runs back to the house. Um, I believe this is when she goes upstairs and um, sort of blanking on the sequence of, a, oh, okay, so she locks herself in in her room. Yeah, she barricades herself. I think she moves a piece of She barricades herself in and she's sort of just losing her shit. Like she's get, having these voices coming in and one of them starts to sound like Emily, I think. Yeah, no, she does. That's, that is, that does it is Emily, like okay. Uh, and, um, and she's saying like, you're never going to leave. You should just kill yourself. You want to die, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And she's watching the clock too because she expects Duncan to come back around lunchtime. Uh, but she's in that room for what seems like most of the day from the way that they show the clock changing. Uh, so it seems like, yeah, and like he doesn't, he doesn't come back. So she's sort of, she's confused where he is. Why, why would, would he say he's coming back at lunch? If he's not coming back, what happened? Yeah. And uh, there was one very brief moment, um, where they showed Duncan, uh, going into town when they established that he was going to be back around lunchtime, you know, they, they show him going into town, but, he goes into like the general store, I think it was, and all of the creepy old dudes like follow him in there very aggressively and pointedly in a way that feels threatening. And we haven't heard from him since, and he hasn't come back in time. So that's all she doesn't know about that, of course, but the viewer does. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, around five o'clock, I think uh, she creeps out of the house and, and hails hails a truck uh, for a ride to town. Uh, and meanwhile, Woody finishes up the farm work and uh, comes back inside to find Emily being all creepy and weird. Uh, and this is when she seduces and bites him. Right, yes. Now we've got a bite, at least. And some seduction. <laughs> now, yeah, now we have an overt bite. And, um, I mean, it's it's when Jessica isn't there. So the way I interpreted it, I mean, and we'll get into it when we get to the ending. But the way I interpreted this film is there are actually, um, Emily is actually a vampire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I think the fact of the townspeople sort of seeming to be in thrall to her uh, and also having these uh, injuries that seem to have come from a vampire that match up. Um, they're, they're in some way under her spell and, and they somewhat act in her interest by 
seeming to corner Duncan in that one spot and just kind of having a hostility to these newcomers. Yeah, no. Um, so, God, I'm really blind. Okay, so she ends up in town. The truck driver drops her off, and then we get this view of the other side of his neck where there's this big gash, so it's implied he's also been vampirized. Oh, was the truck? did the truck driver have a wound? I didn't notice that part. I noticed Yeah, that. they'd make it a point to show they, they've only shown the one side of him, okay. and then when she gets out of the truck, they pull back to show the other side of That's his neck, and there's like a... There's like a cut or a scratch or something around yeah. his neck. It's like a vertical slash wound that's different. It's not vampire teeth, so they kind of do Yeah, it's not there it's never um it's not they're like teeth teeth marks, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but she starts asking people if they've seen Duncan. You know, it's a small town and everybody says no they haven't and like they see but they very clearly seem to be stonewalling her while she's asking and she's starting to panic. Well, she also goes, the car's right, his car is yeah. right there, so have you seen him? And they right, say, right no, I haven't asshole. seen him. Yeah, basically, she's like, well, how did you not? Because yeah. it's right there. Uh, but her... And the old men get creepy and weird. Yeah, but then they uh, they start cutting in these flashbacks to the girl uh, that had led her to the antique dealer's body. Uh, she realizes that the girl was trying to warn her, uh, and, and she basically runs in a panic. I'm not exactly sure where she was trying to get to. Maybe she's just trying to run back to the house, but she collapses in the woods and she wakes up at night with Duncan calling for her. And then he takes her home. Right. And they go up to the bedroom. Um, Duncan's acting a little weird, uh, but he's, he basically just says, you know, get into bed. It's cold. And so Jessica does, and he starts to, he starts to kiss her, but then it seems like he's biting her neck. Yeah, and she sees a neck. She sees a neck wound on him, and she tells herself it's not real. Right. Yeah. She sort of, they're like making out, and she's sort of staring at the ceiling like it's not real, you know. Uh, and then at some point, Emily shows up. Oh, Emily comes in with a knife. Yeah, the the knife that they showed killing the mole in the cookie jar earlier. Right, and she we get this great shot of her with the knife. And you're sort of in the POV of Jessica. She's just coming towards her slowly with a knife. Yep. Then the townspeople show up, all these old dudes. And then it's all like, the old people are randomly in the room. It sort of reminded me of Rosemary's Baby a bit, that scene. Yeah. That's, yeah, I was, I was going to mention that, too. That's, that's exactly what it's reminiscent of, it's I think. It's like a bunch of random old men around the bed. Um, and then we get this... I think interesting shot of um, Jessica. And it's like on the one hand... Uh, the one side is her husband sucking on her neck, presumably biting, drinking her blood. And the other side is Jessica. Yeah. But she's able to, she finally sort of snaps out of it and runs off. Yeah, um, she like bursts through this. There's like six or seven people in the room with her, but somehow she just like bursts through all of them in a, a fit of excitement, I guess. Like, I, I don't understand how she I got mean, I think that. it's supposed to be vague because again, we're trying to do that thing where is it real or is it her imagination? Yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. I guess. I mean, or it could just be they were lazy about it. Um, But, so she runs downstairs, she bangs into this uh, enormous upright base case, which we've shown throughout the film, sitting against the wall, and it, it sort of resembles a coffin. It's, like, black, and yeah, uh, it's sort of similar in shape, a little bit. So she knocks it over, and then she sees inside of the um, stand-up base case is the blonde woman and she's dead 
Yeah, so this is one like I mean, this is the the best part of the movie, really, right here is all yeah, the sequence so. that basically ever since she goes into town uh, after she was attempted the attempted drownings or whatever, uh, it's basically moving pretty fast, and you've got more of that uh, synthesizer music keeping the pace moving. So thankfully, you know, for the, after the first hour, the last half hour is pretty intense. I think. Yeah, and, it moves fairly quickly, and they sort of stop. I attribute some of the slowness in the beginning to them trying to make it vague as to whether she's hallucinating or whether it's actually something supernatural. Yeah, I, I mean, that's probably what it is, but I just, it could have been done yeah, better. I just don't, yeah, I'm with you. I don't know that it necessarily works um, amazingly. Yeah, um, and so, like, basically Jessica bursts out of the, out of the bedroom uh, and you know, finds this dead girl in, in the instrument case. She runs out of the house and toward the ferry. Uh, and the fairy guy who was all gruff with them earlier, he won't take her. Um, he just refuses to. And they show he has a neck wound, too. So obviously he's enthralled to this vampire. Yeah, you get the sense the entire town has actually been vampirized by Emily. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is where I, I really was like, wow, you know, what would a Shirley Jackson vampire novel be like? And I think that more than more than necessarily the earlier stuff, I think the last half hour uh, accomplishes that well. Um, yeah, I would say so. And that is, that's an intriguing question. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, I think the power of this film is the last hour, <clears throat> excuse me, the last, last half hour of the movie. Yeah. So she doesn't seem to have a way off the island via ferry. So she just jumps in a random rowboat at the dock and, um, you know, she's, then she stabs, you know, she stabs a guy that's in the water. That's unclear to me whatsoever who that was, but maybe it's one of the bishops just surfacing like, this other, like Emily, I, I, do you oh, know I who thought that was? was supposed to be Duncan. Oh, really? Because he, he had like a white. I well, he he's like wearing white. all white, which is confusing, but. That's why I thought I it was guess I'd have to go back because I swear it was the actor that played Duncan. And when yeah. they show the face, it's the significance is it's Duncan's face. Oh, OK. I didn't but how he I why he would be in a white suit. It's anybody's guess. See, I mean, I why was uh, why was Emily in the white dress randomly? Well, Emily would have been in the white dress because that's what she drowned in. And I was thinking this was another bishop that drowned in the same body of water surfacing. It could be, you know? yeah, could be. Um, I don't remember seeing Duncan's face, but yeah, I could be wrong about that. But she stabs him with like one of those boat hook things. What are they? Yeah. Know. And uh, and so he just dies in the water without much of a fight. <laughs> um, and then, and then also, we realize that yeah, we're at the beginning of the film, and she's in the rowboat, and this is where we came into the film. Yeah, so she's drifting off into this body of water that, um, yeah, and then she looks back and she can see Emily and a bunch of townsfolks in the woods bordering the bordering the water, and she's just kind of stuck out in the water. But this is when she she repeats the opening um, passage where she says she can't believe that it happened, but she has to believe it happened, whether it's nightmare or sanity. She has no choice, uh, and so that's where the the theme of the movie really stands out and where the title really comes into play because. You know, to the audience, maybe it does matter if this is really happening in the external world or not. But from her perspective, it's a matter of survival. She has to believe what what she believes. And yeah, it almost I mean, this is a very obscure tie in. But there's a video game called uh, Senua Hellblade, I think. And it's the whole point of that is that's this pagan woman who hallucinates. But. It's sort of this action adventure game and it gets into the same thing where it's like ultimately whether this is actually happening to Jessica or not 
this is the way she's perceiving the world, it gets to basically like, whether it's real or not, if you perceive things to be happening, you have to deal with those on your own terms. So does it really matter if it's real or not? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, one of my favorite writers is Philip K. Dick and he does that kind of stuff all the time. Oh yeah. He does that all the time. Yeah. Like, is it real or is it not? Ultimately, does it even matter? Because if you like, like if you see a werewolf and it's chasing you, does it matter if it's real or not? Because you still see a werewolf chasing you and you want to get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And so like one of the points of confusion that I have about this movie and the way it ends is they imply to me that she is stuck in this rowboat and unable to get to safety. So she's just left in limbo, uh, agonizing over how to survive while you back on land, whenever she looks, there's Emily and other people that will probably kill her if, if they can get a hold of her. Clearly they can't go into the water where she is because they don't do that. Although why is beyond me because earlier Emily was in the water trying to drown her. Um, and they could probably very easily get to the rowboat too from like, they're not very far away from one another. And, um, so I was stuck between interpreting it as, okay, is she stuck in this body of water and she can't get to land or she'll die? Uh, if so, why? Because the ferry is on the same body of water, so conceivably she could use the rowboat to get yeah, to Yeah, conceivably it's not that hard. She could, in theory, just row with her hands to the other side. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I would say you know it, it's a little bit more effective if she's stuck in the boat without any oars, but there was a boat hook. I don't remember if there were oars or not. I, I should have gone back and looked, but... I don't think so, but I I don't know. I guess my thing is, I think they intentionally end it in a way where you're supposed to go, well, did that really happen or did she hallucinate it all? Yeah, yeah. Which is why I thought it was Duncan that she killed in the water. I don't know why he'd be in a white suit, though, but then that gets into, well, if she's insane, I mean, who knows? Yeah, because the other thing I would be confused about if it was Duncan is, okay, well, she ran away from the house, and they didn't act like he was running behind her and chasing her, from what I recall. They didn't show him nearby when she was talking to the ferryman, so how did he just get in the water right there where she is without her noticing? Uh, Well, it could be he just wasn't in the house. I mean, if we're getting into schizophrenia, it's like he could be anywhere. True. True. But I did inter... I mean, the way I viewed it was... The town is filled with vampire, vampirized people. Emily is a vampire. Um, Jessica maybe hallucinated some things, but I think ultimately most of what she saw was real. Yeah. That's how I interpreted it. Uh, Yeah, that's roughly where I landed as well. Uh, And I think that... um... I just think there's certain things that... I mean, whether it was just the film didn't do a good job of establishing it or not. I just think it wouldn't have been possible. Um, Well, like, I mean, like all the old people in the wounds, right? Jessica's not there. So why would they have those? Because if we're trying to do it, like everything Jessica sees might be, might not be real. Well, then why are we showing the old people with the wounds when she's not there? Because that's seemingly not her viewpoint. Right, that tells the viewer that this is happening for real, and, and, you know, that's the reliable thing, whereas Jessica's mental state is what's not reliable. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I like this film. Did I love it? Not really. Yeah, that's about where I landed as well. I, I think, um, I don't know, I'll probably watch it again sometime, but it won't, I don't know if it'll be soon, but I, I do think that 
it has a tough chore to build a movie out of this kind of ambiguity and maintain tension with it for 90 minutes. Um, right. Because you have to do a lot of work to establish why you should care. And some of that work, frankly, came off as boring in the, in the hour uh, that leads up to the, the exciting part of the movie. Uh, and I'm, I can handle a good slow burn. You know, I don't mind if, if uh, things seem to meander a bit. I just there wasn't enough atmosphere for the meandering to be all that interesting. Um, there yeah, was I almost wish there had been more stuff with Jessica, even though we have so much stuff with her. It just. I mean, she's clearly the one that's characterized the most. Other than Emily, but I mean, Emily's intentionally not supposed to be that characterized. She's supposed to be mysterious. Yeah. But I guess, I guess I just wish there was more stuff between Jessica and Emily, ultimately, because the Duncan and Woody, I get the purpose of them being there, but there's, I mean, like, we didn't even go into the fact that Woody got killed. Like, that's, oh, yeah, I was gonna mention that's that. how, that's how, like, uh, unimportant his character is. <laughs> like, yeah, there's, a, there's a scene where the, the tractor's going. And Jessica ends up seeing him on the tractor dead. But, like, that's yeah. it. It's a very unceremonious death that happens off screen. Uh, off screen. One thing I did like about that a lot that actually I think was one of the stronger moments of the movie is she's basically terrified for her life and panicking and running away. And, you know, they, they show the tractor using the pesticide shit. And she's, like, running up trying to get Woody's attention because she's desperate. And she's willing to go through all this pesticide spray. Uh, which is absolutely, you know, it's like the North by Northwest crop duster scene where like it just gets all that nasty crop duster yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was suspenseful because you're like, oh, she's breathing in, you know, fucking poison because he's wearing a gas mask. Right. So yeah. You know this is um, so I thought that was a good element of the chase to throw in there. Um, but as the you know, in, as far as the character goes, you don't really care all that much about what happens. To right. Him. It's like he dies and you're like, eh. I mean, not to be harsh about it, but. That mustache, he deserved it for the mustache, in my opinion. I mean, it was funny looking at the, the hair and the fashions, because I was like, I've seen pictures of my parents from the 70s. I'm like, yep, that's what it looked like. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, it's coming, coming to you from the early 70s. This, uh, this is an early film um, that feels like you've seen more familiar, more polished versions of it. It's true. Later. I mean, I guess we're, we can also get into the Night of the Living Dead effect where... You go back and watch Night of the Living Dead and you go, I've seen this a million times, but it's like, right. But you've seen this a million times because Night of the Living Dead did it. Yep. So you also wonder like, well, maybe this would have been more impactful to people when it first came out because I, I, I'm struggling to think of anything that came around 71 or early 70s that was that was this sort of a – I mean I'm struggling to think of anything that's sort of like a – is it a mentally ill person or vampires thing? It happens sometimes, but it's not like the entire film kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the overall look, it's got a very like stark. Um, I, I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of the imagery in the Wicker Man. In yeah, some, in yeah, some I'd say so. It reminds and, me of Last House on the Left for some reason, but that just could I, be the fashions and, admittedly, the amateurish uh, acting. I mean, I, I was thinking about those 70s exploitation horror films, because I think that there's some similar sentiment that's show, that shows up in this earlier film here, where it's got this, uh, the, well, the way it's photographed or whatever feels kind of naturalistic, even though you've got this supernatural stuff happening in the background. And there's this expectation of a lot of violence to happen, but really there's very little violence that happens in the movie. Yeah, no, um, it's true. Most of it, I, a lot think, of it happens off screen. Um, we never actually see the mole getting killed, so... 
True. Yeah, and, and the look of it reminds me of, of some of those movies like Last House on the Left and, and Wicker Man. So there, there's visual cues, but fewer, I think, plot similarities to movies around I mean, the same I time. think the thing ultimately I come down on this film for is I both like it because it seems like a bunch of random people decided let's make a movie and then just took a bunch of acid and smoked a bunch of weed and they had someone who already had house in the country and we're like, let's just film there. So I both love it for that reason, or maybe not love, but I like it for that reason. And I also dislike it for that reason because it makes the, some of the pacing and some of the editing and some of the acting seem very uh, amateurish. Yeah. If they had maybe leaned into a little bit more acid and made it a little bit just. That's almost where I'm at. Yeah. If it had been even weirder, I think I would have been like, well, this was great. Like, who cares that it's amateur hour? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they like they make all the hallucinations mainly auditory and they're they're vague enough. Yeah, that I they almost I would have preferred it if two things. I would have preferred it if since this is ostensibly based on Carmilla, I would have appreciated I get it was the seventies, but I would have appreciated a little more sexuality between Jessica and Emily. Because that is the source material, you know, like um, but also I think if they had actually leaned into the hallucinatory quality of it and had some just like really trippy hallucinations, I think that would have really muddled things up a bit more. Cause you would have been like, well, she saw this random creepy thing. Like, so did this happen? But they, yeah, they, they did a little bit with, um, with the scene where she comes across the dead body, the antique dealer, that had a bit of a hallucinatory feel to it that if they had done more of that, I think it would have improved. Yeah. I think it would have improved the film. I guess ultimately I liked it, but I didn't love it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's about where I am. You know, I I think, um, I I don't feel like there's a ton really to pick apart from there. I I, I don't, uh, it's not that it's not a complex movie, but it's not that complex really. Like, I mean, I think what's interesting about this film other than, you know, the look and the feel of it, I think is more just like the story components and thinking about like, well, what if you did like, I hate to say it this way, but what if you made this, but better? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Okay. Now try it again, but this time good. Yeah. I mean, like, cause I, I think there is definitely something intriguing about the whole concept of a woman who has recently been institutionalized and it's like, is she is what she's seeing real or is it all in her head? And I do think that works to an extent because we're not really holding on the backstory so much that you're like, oh, of course it's real because they held on the backstory so much. It's like little like, oh, this is who owned the house. So if, it, if she really was schizophrenic, she might, you know, take a lot from some insignificant thing. I just don't know that that was done as well as it could have been. Yeah, absolutely agree. Good idea. Flawed execution in most places, but good half hour at the end. Yeah, I mean, again, for a film that came out in 1971, I think it still holds up to an extent. Yeah, I mean, it's worth watching. I think that uh, it's not bad. I wouldn't call it a bad movie. I just wouldn't call it a great one. No, I mean, I like, yeah, basically not great, but not bad. Somewhere in between. All right. Yeah, well, but I, don't I think know that's going to... What else he's done, but uh, I would be curious to see if he, like, 
took some of this stuff and maybe went further with it and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe had a bigger budget or, or polished Yeah, I'd never up. heard of John D. Hancock. Um, Me neither. I'm going through his filmography now, and I, there's still really nothing I've... Nothing I've really ever heard of, but let me see. Da -da -da. Yeah, there, he never really did anything. Apparently, he did some episodes of the new Twilight Zone. Twilight in the, Zone. Uh -huh. In the 80s. They had an 80s version. Uh, but yeah, no, it doesn't really sound like he's done anything. I mean, maybe he went and did some other interesting films. I've just never heard of them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar. I, I do know a number of people that re in the horror world that really, really like this movie a lot more than I did. So I'm, I guess yeah, my next I step mean, is it's one of those things where brands. I had heard of this film again. Sort of a similar thing happened where you know when we covered um, the one with Adam Green, the digging up the oh, marrow, up marrow, where yeah. I thought that was like this Irish monster movie. I sort of had a similar thing with this where I think I confused this with Don't Look Now. Okay. Whatever I, the well, one was with the the little girl in a raincoat. Yeah, that's don't look now. So I mean, that was made in the seventies too, and I guess I know, I mean, for some don't... reason wires were crossed. And when I initially started this film, I thought that was this film. So obviously, that's not that's a different movie. Yeah, don't look now is a Daphne du Maurier. That's actually one of my favorite novellas, uh, and I I like the movie more than Let's Scare Jessica to Death. But I also don't quite love that one as much as a lot of people seem to. Oh, yeah, but I think it's similar where it's like you hear about it on lists, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, but admittedly, you know, I'm somebody that like, I'll get my hot takes out of the way. Like, I don't love Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. I thought it was fine. I mean, there's a lot of like revered horror films that I just was like, yeah, it was fine. You know, <laughs> uh, like Friday way. the 13th, the first one. Yeah, it was fine. I don't know. I don't have a huge reverence for it. I think Nightmare on Elm Street was decent. Don't like a lot of the sequels. You know, so there's a lot of, like, very traditional horror stuff that I'm kind of like, man. Yeah, I mean, same here. I mean, I kind of feel the same about Friday the 13th. And I mentioned earlier that slashers aren't really my subgenre in general, although there are some that I do love. But, um, I mean, the other thing about this movie is that, you know, the 70s were a really unique time for horror film in particular, and I think that there's so many things that happened that decade that became significant to the, the, the history of the art form, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or those early Wes Craven movies. You've yeah. got all kinds of stuff happening in the 70s, and this movie is like kind of hanging out at the very beginning of the decade, and somehow we still talk about it, even though it's not held up in the same regard as like Texas Chainsaw. Uh, so I'm curious to know a little bit more about where this film fits into that particular era of time because it's not some you know i wasn't alive in the 70s right, I was born yeah. uh, and i think that you know one thing i've been doing over the last year is watching a lot more movies from from about the 70s but i mean i had seen some classics before but i've been filling in a lot of gaps in my history over the last year and i think this is something that's useful at least for that as well yeah i would say so um yeah it's good to go back sometimes like the other day i watched sorcerer uh the freaking film I wish I could say I liked it because I watched this whole interview he did with Nicholas Winding Refn and Refn talks about how Sorcerer is a masterpiece and Freakin talks about how it's his best film. But honestly, yeah. you go back, at least I went back and watched Sorcerer for the second time, I will add, thinking, well, maybe I didn't give it a fair shake the first time. And I still hated yeah. it. So, 
You know, I've been hearing a, a lot of people recommend Sorcerer to me recently, and I have not seen that one. I almost watched it about a week ago, but I, I didn't get around to it. Um, so I'll have to check that out soon. I mean, maybe we could, I don't know. It's one of those where it's like, maybe we could cover it, but I just like, I had such a negative response to it. And I know a lot of people have been getting into it lately and like really like it. So I don't know. Maybe we could cover it though. Okay. Yeah. I mean, either way, I, I mean, it's, it's rare that I see if I've seen enough of William Friedkin's movies that I, I would expect that it's at least worth watching, whether I end up like, I think it it's not. worth watching. Yeah. There's definitely some cool stuff in it. I just, well, you know, if we talk about it, we'll talk about it. All right. Uh, but yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up uh, for celluloid citizens. Um, real quick. I want to thank, I finally remember your last name now. Thank God. Matt Henshaw. Thank you for, Again, thank you. thank you for donating the $5 um, on the Anchor site. And he recently gave me 5 bucks for my Patreon. So, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, I know it's only 10 bucks, but that stuff goes a huge way for me and helping me to keep uh, the show going and to keep the press and my writing and all of the creative endeavors going. Because, believe it or not, I don't make a decent wage doing this. So... This is all for the love. Mostly uh, for yeah. the love. I made like 10 bucks last month, but... Hey, I would love $10. Hey, it, I'm not complaining, <laughs> man. I've never made any money off a podcast, so... Especially when I, I'm looking into t-shirts and hats now, listeners, so... Man, if those ever get off the ground, that's going to be so exciting. Because, like, even two t-shirts would probably be more money than I've ever made on a hey, podcast. They're going to be awesome. Yeah. And it's a good logo, too. Brandon O'Connell, Brian's brother, did it. A little wonderkind there. Uh, but, yeah, that's going to wrap it up. So, for Cellulite Citizens, I'm Sean M. Thompson. I'm Christopher Burke. And, uh, yeah, you know, don't kill the moles. <laughs> well, that was stupid. Whatever. Good night, everybody. Good night.